Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so, I don't even think there's a word for what I am. Normally I say I'm very excited, but I'm more than excited. I am just so, so happy and so honored for this particular podcast that you are about to hear with somebody who has more of an influence on my life and everybody in the world's life than almost anybody in the entertainment business and I'm talking about the legendary Gary Marshall and rather than be in a situation where I sit around and plug things or tell you how grateful I am that you listen to this podcast I think in the spirit of having as much time with this man as I possibly can I'm just going to go into what I normally do is my cold open when I look at my guest and I think to myself What am I going to say and how is it going to tie in to this and be meaningful to all of you? And as I look at Gary Marshall, I think of something that happened to me today. Unbelievably, there was a homicide right by my house in Upper Malibu Mountains and wasn't allowed to get in there. So took a Lyft driver or an Uber driver down there called them again this morning two of them canceled another uber two of them canceled finally my fifth driver comes he picks me up i say what do you do for a living he said i've written 12 screenplays and four novels and i sold my first screenplay but 
didn't do anything since, and now I finally sold my 12th. And I said, that's amazing. And I thought to myself, what else are you doing besides driving a car? Well, you know, I write books, I rewrite things, I ghostwrite, I do everything I can because I want to try to figure out a way to maximize everything I have inside of me. And I thought to myself, as I look at Gary Marshall, I thought of a show that was very inspirational to me as I was growing up that he didn't produce but involved somebody that he would work with. And when I was a little kid, my favorite show was a black and white show called The Andy Griffith Show. And my favorite character is a single-digit kid, obviously, Opie. Who was Opie? Ron Howard. When I got to college, I went to the movie theater for the first time in college. I saw a movie that became my favorite movie that year. Splash. The credits come on. Who directed it? Ron Howard. I got in the business trying to make great television shows. The first show I ever made was a show called Action. Unfortunately, it got canceled, but it was a show that was edgy, unique, dark, funny, and probably one of the greatest things that I was ever a part of in my entire life in terms of scripted television. I looked for shows like that on television. Couldn't really find them that much. And then one came along that I loved, Arrested Development. And then when I watched the Emmys that year, who came up to accept the Emmy as the producer of the show and the person whose company, Imagine, produced it? Ron Howard. And when I think of Ron Howard, I think of a guy who went through all different kinds of things in his career and was able to take them to the next level. Didn't just stick with one thing. Wasn't a person who wrote a screenplay and said, ah, nobody's buying it, I might as well get out of the business. Or maybe he directed something and it didn't go well and he got out of the business. Or maybe he acted in something and it didn't go well. But one of the things that meant a lot to me when I was growing up in my teenage years, which I purposely neglected to mention, was Happy Days. And who was my favorite character as a teenager on Happy Days? Ron Howard. Again, you don't just ride one cylinder in your car. You use all of them. And when I look at Gary Marshall, I'm looking at a man who has written television shows, created them. He has written movies and put the stories together for movies. He has produced movies. He has directed movies. He has created, written, and produced plays. He's done voiceover work on The Simpsons and many, many other things. He's been an actor in some of the greatest shows of my generation, as well as some of the greatest shows now, like Louie. And I think it should be noted for anybody that's listening, in probably the shortest cold open I've ever done in my history, that... If it isn't obvious to you as an audience member listening, if you think you only have one talent in your life, you don't. You have many talents. And if something doesn't work the way you want it to, then fight forward, and while you're working on one, work on another and drive that rock up the hill. 
And if that one falls down, drive another one. And if you keep going and pursuing and put the work together, the hard work it takes to make any skill set you have successful, I can guarantee you all that you might not have the kind of career that Gary Marshall has. But let me tell you something. You're going to be a lot closer to having it than if you don't. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to IKillJFK.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to IKillJFK.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much, everybody. This is an episode that you will never forget, I can guarantee you, with Gary Marshall, and I'm going to introduce him. I have 17 pages of introduction, so hopefully when I finish the introduction, we'll have about six minutes left for the podcast. This guy has done everything in the business except welding and set design. I think he hasn't done that, maybe. So here we go. Gary Marshall is a veteran, producer, director, actor, and writer of film, television, and theater. His five-decade-long career in Hollywood is paralleled by his passion for softball, a game he still plays. 
After graduating from Northwestern University's School of Journalism, he created, wrote, produced some of the most memorable television situation comedies in the history of our medium, including Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, and The Odd Couple. Marshall began his career as a joke writer for such comedians as Joey Bishop and Phil Foster, and then became a writer for The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. In 61, he moved to Hollywood where he teamed up with Jerry Belson as a writer for television. They worked on The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Joey Bishop Show, The Danny Thomas Show, and The Lucy Show. His first producing assignment came with Hey Landlord in 1966, and he stepped up the very next year producing The Lucy Show. Then came successes in all the shows I mentioned earlier. Marshall also launched independent productions via his theater, The Falcon, which is a wonderful theater. If you haven't gone there in Toluca Lake, it's amazing, and it wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the spirit that Gary puts in it. And he's launched so many different talent there, and he's been working on there for years, so please check that out. It's a little commercial in the middle of the bio. In 96, he was awarded the Women in Film Lucy Award in recognition of excellence and innovation in creative works that have enhanced the perception of women through the medium of television. In 97, Marshall was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame for his contributions to the field of television, and he also has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It should be noted that Mr. Marshall has directed 18 movies. Among them are Pretty Women, Beaches, Overboard, The Princess Diaries 1 and 2, Runaway Bride, Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve starring Robert De Niro, Hilary Swank, and Halle Berry, and many, many more. As an actor, he's played memorable roles, including The Devil in Hocus Pocus, Mr. Harvey in his sister Penny Marshall's A League of Their Own, who can forget that, and Irwin in his son Scott Marshall's debut feature film, Keeping Up with the Steins. He's also done amazing voiceover work that I love and my kids love in such films as Chicken Little, multiple episodes of The Simpsons, The Looney Tunes Show, and a Scooby-Doo movie. Recently, he has done amazing guest acting appearances in Louis C.K.'s show Louis, the CBS sitcom Two and a Half Men, TV Land's Hot in Cleveland, Fox's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he's written two autobiographies with his daughter Lori, Wake Me When It's Funny, and My Happy Days in Hollywood. In 2014, Marshall received the Laurel Award for TV Writing Achievement from the Writers Guild of America, and his latest film released this past month, Mother's Day, stars Jennifer Aniston, Kate Hudson, and Julia Roberts. You should really check that out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. I can truly say it, and it means something. The man, the myth, the legend, Gary Marshall. Hello, I'm here, here. <laughs> Penny's brother. That's who I am. No, that's very nice. I'd like to hear my career goes over. <laughs> no, in notice of my biography, I mentioned my kids and everything. I like to do that, and uh, I like all what you said, and I will talk about any subject. But I heard, I listened to your introduction, and you were talking about pushing that rock up the hill. People keep saying, well, how do you not be depressed? Because I have a philosophy. It's called the myth of Sisyphus. 
took me weeks to say that correctly because <laughs> I'm from the Bronx, but myth of Sisyphus. It's about the guy, the Greek god, who did something wrong, who knows, and he was relegated. The god said he had to push this rock up the hill. Once it got to the top of the hill, it rolled down again. So he had to walk down the hill and push it up again. This is what he did forever, infinity. Well, I thought that's what life was about when I was growing up. But then I figured out if when he pushed the rock up the hill and then it rolled down again, when he, he had a choice when he came down the hill, he could either say, now I gotta go down the bottom of the hill and push the rock up the hill again. This is what I do. Or as he's walking down, he could say, I have no rock. I'm walking down the hill. Look at this. I could whistle. I could look at the sky. I could do whatever I want. I'm walking down the hill. So it, I figured out that I chose to do that. So life is not not pushing the rock up. It's just you get a moment. So when you take that moment walking down the hill, that's what is called the moment where life is good. And a lot of people don't look at it like that, but I push that, and more and more I'm getting people to look at that when they're depressed. So pushing a rock is part of my life, and um, part of Ron Howard's, and part of everybody in this strange business. You know, I had the pleasure of having lunch yesterday with a good friend of yours who was one of my first podcast guests ever, Peter Engel. Oh, yeah, Peter. And Peter. Saved by the bell. Saved by Peter Engel. My <laughs> daughter, Lori, wrote for that show and his other shows. So what did he have to say? Well, he just turned 80, and I'm not going to get into your age, but presumably you're somewhere between 70 and 120. We can say 81. It's all right. All right. So The waitress downstairs, I said much younger, but I'm really <laughs> 81, yes. Awesome. It's nice to know you're still looking. <laughs> yeah, you got to look, see what's going on. You just on. don't touch. No, you just dream. You Fan dream? Yeah, fantasy. <laughs> Do you just... need colored pills to dream? No, no. I, I just dream. But uh, Pete Angle, I knew through a different... Uh, I know a long time, a good fellow. Yeah, like and him. so I said to him something, and what he said, I'm going to say to you, it yeah. kind of shocked me, but I think I felt it. I said, you turned 80, and you had your birthday party, and the next day you wake up, and you sit down, and you have your morning coffee. What are you thinking? And this is what he said that shocked me, that I don't feel from you. He said... I'm done. I'm done, Barry. I'm happy. If I didn't wake up this morning, it's over. I said, well, what if I told you you were going to live till 90? He said, no, I don't want to live till 90. I said, what about 87? No. I said, what about 85? He said, well, I could take another five years, but I don't need it. I'm done, and I'm not looking forward to anything. I don't care about anything Moving forward, my kids are going to be okay. I'm okay. I've had a great life, and I'm not looking forward to anything really in the future like that. And when I said goodbye to him, and I'm sure this happens to you sometimes when you say goodbye to somebody, you hug them, and they walk away, and you're kind of looking, and sadly you don't know if you're going to see them again yes, because they that. put it out there. <laughs> 
that they're okay with the universe taking them. But when I sit across from you, and this isn't an indictment of Peter, there's nothing wrong with what he said. When I sit across from you, I do not feel any sliver of that. Well, why should I be done? That was a hell of a good-looking waitress. <laughs> you gotta understand. No, uh, I like to work. I like to, you know, get up in the morning and you, it's early, but you go to work and you hug Julia Roberts and uh, Jennifer Aniston, Kate Hudson. Not a bad day. So I like to work. I I meet new people, and I don't know who Peter's hanging around with. But I hang around with a lot of young people, and. Uh, on their way up and they're vital and everything and uh, I, I just get turned on by all of that and uh, my father lived to 92 and uh, he couldn't talk really at the end but he could curse so I knew he was all right because <laughs> that's what he mostly did but no I, I think it's all in your mind how old you are and what you're doing and uh, I just enjoy life so much. It's the moment, walking down the hill. That's the part I enjoy. Anything could happen. You could meet anybody. Peter did great shows. And then he, uh, I'm not saying anything about it. He became very Christian for a while. I think originally he was Jewish, but he moved to Christian for a while. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know what he is. But uh, I, I am religious. I don't go to church every day, but I'm Christian. But I don't think uh, that has too much to do with it. it. Somebody's up there and they'll take you when they're ready. But meanwhile, until he's ready, I'm having a good time. Now, in Hollywood, a lot of writers, a lot of producers, a lot of people in the business feel that the older they get, the more cruel the talent is to them, the more they don't have opportunities that they had before. And whenever anybody says that to me, I just say two words, Gary Marshall. <laughs> Those are good words. Well, there's three of us still going, Woody Allen and Clint Eastwood and me, somebody was saying. There's other directors. Yeah, well, I like directing and directing, you know, you gotta, it's very busy. So I, I, I like writing the best, but uh, writing, you don't meet anybody. I spent those years all by myself in a room Every, when Jerry Belson and I worked together, everything we wrote, we put in a disco scene. So there'd be girls, we could go on the set, and who was that? I mean, something we had to do, but as director, you're out there, and uh, I do all the jobs, see? Sometimes they put me down because uh, I enjoy life so much. You know, Spielberg, uh, Coppola, who was one of my mentors, and, and Scorsese, they haven't been on Family Feud. I was on Family <laughs> Feud. I was on Jeopardy. I was on Wheel of Fortune. So does it make me a bad director? You were on Last Comic Standing as a judge. Yes, That's where I first I met try. you. Hey, there's a show. I'll take a look. And uh, Family Feud. I was telling Kobe, I was against Dr. Phil. I said, you could have beat Dr. Phil. <laughs> you like Nobody wants to go on but me. So that's, I just do different aspects of it. And that, I must say, keeps me interested, you know, every day. You see what's going on over here. And I I, I think it's a a part of thing. Ageism is no question uh, a problem. But I, I must say, I think diversity is a bigger problem than ageism. Because if you do your work, 
And, uh, you know, if I can't think anymore, if I'm not making sense, somebody waves and says, you're not making sense, Gary. I think my assistant often says that. Yeah, that's Heather Hall, who just happens to also be a co-producer on Mother's Day, who are very, very grateful to, yeah. as well as Chili Jean, who harassed Chili this man Jean. forever. And so I'm grateful for both of them because they yeah. set this up. And thank yeah, you Chili very much. Jean was in one of my movies. She experienced all that. A former assistant of mine. Yeah, she was in uh, New Year's Eve, right. But anyway, I, I think I don't uh, get to... Uh, involved with the ageism thing. I, I do like to talk to people who are with me and coming up, but you know, a lot of people sit in restaurants and talk about the old days. I, the old days are nice, but the new days I, I think are also interesting. So I, I don't, uh, I can't honestly say, oh, I could have got this job, but I was too old. I'm sure to be very honest, sometimes I go places and I think they think I'm dead. So they think, oh, he's alive, look, he's here, he put a jacket, the whole thing. So I try to keep active and uh, somebody will know I'm around, but uh, I don't really have great stories about ageism because I haven't gone through it too much. One of the most well-documented things in the world of sports is Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in terms of baseball. Here you were working in the late 50s, early 60s, and onward in the middle of huge racial tension. Who was the first African-American writer or producer that you hired to work on one of your productions? And what were the circumstances around it? And did you go through a lot of tension because of it? Well, there was a move in the 70s to hire, first of all, nobody hired women then. I was one of the first to put women on my writing staff because, you know, Laverne and Shirley was about women. I don't want to shock you. So we had women, but we had a, a, a number of my friends who were Spanish and Mexican had changed their name and suddenly I could hire them. I remember one guy, I said, Fred Meyer or something, his real name was Marino. I said, if you change your name, I can hire you because it's a part of the business now. And the first, my sister, Ronnie, I have a sister, Penny, who was the star. I'm the writer, and my sister, Ronnie, made sure we got paid. She was always the producer. And she hired a, a Afro-American uh, assistant secretary, which was a little shocking to Paramount, but not, not much. They were fine. He was a, he actually it was a very good guy. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. That was Ralph Farquhar. He went to West Point, I remember, and he quit West Point. I said, really? To become a comedy writer? <laughs> he said, yeah. And he is. He produces shows now and uh, everything, but uh, those were uh, days where Mostly the diversity and ethics were behind the scene. And, uh, you know, people say, if you look out the window, you know what's going on. I looked on TV and I saw no blue-collar workers, only very well-to-do ladies who did well, except for Lucy, who Desi was quite well, you know, not well-bred, <laughs> Abe was 
quite well to do. But then I did Laverne and Shirley, blue collar workers, and lo and behold, an audience arrived. <laughs> there were other ones in the in the time. So there was all sorts of whether you're women, whether it's age, whether it's uh, Afro American, whatever it is. It's always something going on, and uh, you try to cover everything, but you can't write that way. You can't create that way. You got to create for whoever can do the best job, and the characters can go one way or the other. But now, you know, it's better to do diversity now. The truth of the matter is, Barry, I hire every movie. I've directed 18 movies. In 18 movies, Hector Alessandro was in 18 movies. That's my diversity. <laughs> Leave me alone already. So I always start with diversity. Why do you put him in 18 movies? Well, because we grew up together in the streets of New York. and uh, I always talk about relationships and yeah, how important they are. They are. And that's amazing that he's worked in. Even Quentin Tarantino doesn't hire somebody 18 no, times. Nobody but me. No, he's he's Puerto Rican, but if uh, he was dating your sister, he used to say, I'm a Spaniard, but he's Puerto <laughs> Rican. Do you ever call him for like the 70s movie, and he's like, come on, Gary, I just can't do another one of your movies. No, no, he's always there. We always have fun. It's a matter of he's a good actor, but he also has literally so many toupees, you'd be shocked. <laughs> so we go to his house before I even start the movie and we pick a toupee and we say, all right, let's do that character. Who is it? We make up a character and that goes right in the movie. That's how I work with him. But the serious <laughs> side, to be honest, sometimes with actors particularly, you got a lot of them, I use a big, big cast. Actors have a problem and sometimes uh, I can't always solve it, but an actor often I'm being serious now, we'd rather talk to another actor about something. So that's why I have Hector. I said, Hector, I don't understand what's going on here. Go find out. And he's, it's like having a friend at the court with you at all times. And even the greatest actors in the world are afraid to take you inside and say, listen, Gary, I think it's better if I walk in this side and I'm holding yeah. this. Some things they won't tell me. They'll tell Hector. <laughs> So and he's like fish. a producer with you, too, even though he doesn't produce. No, uh, we don't give him that credit, but he always gets Did you see his credit on uh, Mother's Day? It was a special credit. It said all the stars, and then it said, and as always, Hector <laughs> Alexander. Nobody gets that credit, and as always. I'm going to start negotiating for that. <laughs> okay. One of the things that people don't say is that the first television show in history had a Latino person in it. Yes. It was one of the most popular shows wasn't, ever. It wasn't by policy, it was by love. love. Love does a lot of things in the business. Well, but one of the things about you that's so wonderful, you talk about love, you work on projects that no one is related to you, and you've worked on many, many projects, the ones recently with your daughter and your son that I mentioned, but also Laverne and Shirley, you're working with somebody who's a part of your life and working with family isn't always easy. Did you work with family? I have worked with yeah. family, but not in the business. Oh, I, I think about how difficult it can be sometimes. And I want to share with you something that you might not know, or maybe you do know, because he was a troubled man and he passed away. But he did the podcast right before he passed away, Chris Thompson. Oh, yeah. And he told me the story about the other side of writing and producing. The side of writing and producing where the pressure is so much 
and people want exactly a certain thing and there's the tension between the producer and writer and the stars and he talked about you as being this loving mentor but he talked about the difficulty he had with penny and her co-star yes they were quite a pain in the neck yes and he talked about how after one table read they asked him to basically toss it out and rewrite something else he went to the other executive producer because he was uncomfortable going to us, presumably because of Hector Alexandro <laughs> thing. And he went to another executive producer. He said, listen, I'm just going to uh, take off um, here. You, you take over. And he drove to the airport. He took all the cash he had, got a ticket to Tahiti. And he's on a beach naked in the middle of nowhere. Three days later, he hears a boat coming. And then he hears a megaphone. Mr. Thompson! Mr. Thompson, I have Penny Marshall on the ship to shore radio. <laughs> He's naked. He's thinking, how the hell did she find me? He runs into his hut on the dock on the water, grabs the money on the table, like $300. He swims out to the guy, holding the money above him, gives it to the guy, puts his hand in his mouth in the shh symbol, and he says, take this. You never found me. <laughs> Right, that's a great story. No, that's the penny. The people always say, what's the favorite show? Blah, blah, blah. I love everything. What's the hardest? Always was Laverne Shirley. Because when you work, when you're short, you say, okay, all right, we fixed that. Now we'll fix the second act tomorrow. And you go home. But Penny knew where I lived. <laughs> and she would come to my house and ring the bell. And if my wife wouldn't answer, she'd climb over the fence. She knew I was hiding. And she'd come in the house and... And we got to fix the second act now and the thing. So I think Chris did the right thing <laughs> uh, because they, they they were great. They performed great. But you did great. over 250 episodes with family. Well, yeah. Now, were there times when you went to the set and you guys weren't talking? No, no. Early in life. I mean, this is, I share, you know, you got to deal with what you're given. And early in life, my two sisters and I sat down and said, our parents are nice, but they're not all together here. So I'm telling you, and I was the oldest, I said, we got to stick together or it's going to be messy. So we always made a pact when we were little and we've always had. So we never fought. We would get aggravated. But we never had not spoke or anything like that, Penny. So, yeah, she drove me crazy. And then uh, Chris, she drove crazy too. But uh, Chris, unfortunately, joined when we were on Happy Days with the nicest bunch of people ever. And, you know, Chris got in trouble once in a while. and uh, More than once in a while. Yeah, and bad things, not nice things. Chris said on the podcast he always battling drugs and alcohol and all different kinds of drama in his life. Yeah, well, it was cops drama. Anyway, because I knew that, I, I teamed them up immediately. I like to put teams together. And when he first came, he came with two other writers, but they were together. And... I had two guys who were uh, lay ministers. They were in the Christian faith. So I said, Chris, you'll work with these two guys. It'll be good. You'll, you'll come from different places. <laughs> he didn't know they were ministers. But he worked with them. And Happy Days was a delight. Laverne Shirley was very difficult because the girls were difficult. And uh, it was hard for them there are people in life, there's a serious side of your show, it's good to talk about. 
And people in life who, no matter what they get, they don't think they really deserve it. I was such a sickly child, I feel I deserve everything. Because <laughs> I could have been dead at eight years old. They said, my doctor said to my mother, I heard, if you don't move this kid to Arizona, he's going to die. And I waited for them to pack. Anybody packing to go to Arizona? No. <laughs> and finally I said to my father, are we ever moving? He said, no, we can't afford to move, move to Arizona. I said, all right, well, that's it. But uh, so I come from that background. That's a good place to jump off. So I want to go way, way, way back. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're going back to where you grew up, what your family was like, your siblings, and how it was socioeconomically, how your lives were together, what everything was like. And then what was your first inspiration that you had to get into the entertainment business? My first inspiration, my mother was a dance teacher and loved entertainment and thought the most important thing was to make people laugh. And she said, the worst thing you can be is boring. She said, don't be boring. I was six years old. I said, what's boring, Ma? And she said, your father. <laughs> so I, I understood that's the dynamic I'm working with here. But my father was a great boss, so we all became bosses. But I didn't really feel, because I was such a sickly kid, I was in bed, I had pneumonia three times growing up. So I didn't have any great inspiration other than there was a thing called radio in those days. There wasn't TV. And I listened to radio, and you had to use your imagination. I had two sisters younger than me that didn't want to say, talk to me, and my, I'm in bed. So I used to tell them jokes and stories so they would hang out a little. But I really didn't have an inspiration, what you call that, until college at uh, Northwestern's uh, Middle School of Journalism, very prodigious school and everything. And it just so happened I literally had four Pulitzer Prize winners in my class. And I could see right away they were quite good, <laughs> better than Future me. Pulitzer Prize winners. Futures, not at the point. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, so who were they? Uh, they, they were uh, from the... Uh, Les Crystal, Bob Mulholland. Les Crystal was McNeil, Larry Port, Bob Mulholland, the head of NBC News. Uh, Gigi Gaia, who was big Washington, uh, interviews the president in her day. And Lois Kroger from the Chicago Tribune. And I noticed they were quite good. But I also noticed whenever the teacher would take some to, of the articles to read out loud what we wrote, they would all say, read Gary's, read Gary's out loud, because it would make them laugh. I came from a different place than they were coming from. So they didn't say, ooh, it'll be better than ours, but at least they'll make us laugh. And that's when I first noticed maybe Maybe it would be a good thing if I did something funny. And I was literally the sports editor of the Northwestern paper, the Daily Northwestern. And uh, the year I was sports editor, the team was 1-11. and 11. So I think that leads to comedy somehow, <laughs> if they're going to read. So I did a humorous columns. But that was when I first thought, well, maybe something, seriously. And there was a guy named Fred Freeman, a very good writer, who was in speech school. I was in, and he said, 
I'm a comedy writer. We should team up and write things together. And we were together for eight years and came to Hollywood together. I later was with Jerry Belson, but Fred Freeman was my first partner. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Okay, so you get the Hollywood. Back then, is it a situation where it's very common for people to partner with other writers, or is it more common for people to be alone? It was better to team up because the... Uh... The comedians yelled at you a lot. There was a lot of yelling. And so it's better if there's two of you because you can cheer each other up. But I came out with Fred Freeman and Joey Bishop and Danny Thomas brought me to Hollywood. Why did Joey and Danny bring you to Hollywood? How did you get their attention? For instance, Don Rio, who created My Wife and Kids, yeah. he was on the show. And he said when he was 17 years old, he saw an advertisement that Slappy White was coming to a nightclub in Rhode Island. He snuck out of the house. He wrote like 50 jokes and he knocked on his dressing room, snuck in and gave it to him. And the next week he's at Harlem at the Apollo with Slappy White. How did you get the attention of these big time comedians? You walked up. First, there was a place called the Stage Delicatessen. All the comedians hung out. It's still there? Yes, and it's in changed. New York City. In New York City, and it, you would write them jokes. It was known. You would write jokes, and they would pay you in food. If you gave them a page, okay, give them a sandwich. No dessert yet. I remember Buddy Hackett <laughs> said that. A sandwich, but no dessert. It's not worth dessert. But the only one who was really, I mean, they were all nice, but the one who really helped me was a comedian named Phil Forster. And uh, I used to get, you know, sometimes a, a hot turkey, a whole meal out of him. And, and he introduced me to Joey Bishop, and we wrote for all the comics. And then finally, Joey Bishop became a host on The Tonight Show, and he brought me on The Tonight Show. More relationships. But yeah. just back up one back. second. So you're at Northwestern. Yeah. You go to New York. Where do you have money to go to New York? Where are you living? And you hear the rumor, just go to the stage deli, start writing the night before, and just hand pages the people. Are these handwritten pages, or are they typed on a typewriter? No, we actually, you know what a typewriter is? You Of course, I'm ancient. Many don't. No, I had that plan, what you said. Didn't work out, because as I graduated, uh, I never got 
really to New York. I got sent to Korea in the United States Army. I had to serve two years, and I was mostly in Korea, and there I was involved. I Thank God I played the drums, so I made a, actually made some money in the Army playing at officers' clubs, and then we had radio shows. I worked on the um, uh, Korean radio, uh, AFKN it was called, the Army radio station, and so have friends from those days. So two years later, I got out, and meanwhile, Fred Freeman, my partner from Northwestern, had an apartment, and we sat down. You know, you got to start. It was, people laughed, but it worked for us for a minute. I, we got cards printed, and we sa- it said, comedy writers, 100% virgin material, because his father was in the garment business. That's what we passed out at the stage deli, and they threw it away. But once in a while, they did talk to you, you know, young kids, and uh, it was a matter of of giving you a shot. Was it a situation at the old stage deli, which is still there, along with the Carnegie yeah. Deli? Were there five writers you didn't know hanging around? Were there 10? Were there 20 walking through the restaurant handing things to people? What was That's happening? the way it is today at the comedy store here in L.A. They're all hanging outside the comedy store. There weren't too many hanging out there. Uh, but we we knew that because they you couldn't go in if you had no money to eat to buy anything so you hung out outside but there weren't so 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 many but that's where we started and it was a matter of uh, you know you you love certain people and that that terrible moment where do you have the courage to walk up to Phil Forster and say something it's very very hard to get that courage up and. Uh, you try. So your first television gig was with Joey Bishop on the Tonight Show where he hosted. He was the guest host. And you were the monologue writer? Yes. Were there many monologue writers? Or six. Six of them. Yes. Got it. And because I'm very loyal, two were nice to me. And later when I got out to Hollywood and I had the odd couple, and I hired them. They came out and worked for me. And uh, Bob Howard and Walter Kempley were their names, and they did very well. You hear that, everybody? That's about the ratio in any profession. Why do you think it is that there's so many troubled people? What's your opinion of why people complicate winning? They hurt themselves, yes. They get in their own way. Uh, they become their own worst enemy. That was the cliche. I don't know why. I think insecurity. I had a fight with my... Jerry Belson, one of the greatest partners I ever had, one of the funniest men I have ever met. He has passed on now. But I used to say, I'd like to go and talk to this uh, class of writers. You want to... He said, no, I don't like that. I said, why wouldn't you like to help a young writer? He said, they'll take my job. I said, they're not going to take your job. They're no, they might. So I, did, I said, fine, they'll take my job. So I think it has to do with security. And where does security come from? I, I think, I, I hate to get into this a whole other podcast, is... <laughs> It has to do with the women in your life, who you get married or It doesn't even have to be women. The mate in your life, who you're with, I think is very important in life. Talk about that a little bit. So where did you meet your first love? And talk about your marriage and what that woman was to you. 
the woman behind the man. Well, I mean that it's corny as it sounds. That was I mean I love dating. I'm Scorpio. I'm Italian. I have uh, daughters and sisters. That's why I do female work a the lot. The waitress downstairs just slipped yeah. her number under the yeah. door. I just want you to know that. Oh, good. I like. <laughs> like to see no i met this and that but then i uh your assistant is beautiful so i can see heather has been with me 22 years if i dozed off she could finish this podcast <laughs> she knows my act better than me but uh no it, it, i was very lucky because my mother and father both always said you're a sickly child marry a doctor <laughs> so I looked at Dr. Him, but I met when I first came to Hollywood. When you're from the Bronx, you don't drive well. So I, my partner, Fred Freedom, drove. I didn't do anything. So when you don't drive, you date around your neighborhood. So in the next apartment building, I met a girl who happened to be a nurse. And I remember calling my mother saying, how about nurse? Is that close enough? <laughs> And she said, well, you'll see. And uh, I married her, and uh, she's not uh, a favorite of show business, didn't love show business at all. And uh, we've been married 53 years. I only had one wife, and she was always there. And again, the story, as she tells it, is when we first went out on a date, she heard I wrote comedy for Joe. So she told me a joke. And it happened to be a joke I wrote for Jack Parr. <laughs> and that startled her. How could I know that? And that kind of bonded us, I think. She laughs very good at my stuff. And they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did she know? She kind of liked me. She didn't like uh, they kept They kept telling her to marry a doctor. And she didn't like so many of the doctors. She was a big nurse. She opened the intensive care unit at Cedars of, uh, it was called Cedars of Lebanon then. That was that special unit when there's no chance they bring you in there. And she, she once saved Peter Sellers' life by getting on top of him. There was no heart machines. And she pounded on his chest. She brought him back. He lived for another 17 years. I figure she was a friend of comedy. So we lasted a long time. I'm sure she saved your life by getting on top of you and pounding you too. She does pound well. She does all the, all the things she does well. But she basically, uh, 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 you know, been with me. We've, we've uh, been blessed that we can stay together so long. I think that's amazing because in this world, let's face it, marriages, 50% of them don't work. Yeah. And you made it work, and you talked about that so eloquently about basically you have to have a good woman in your life. And I, I feel like helps. sometimes when you're single, if you're in this business or any business, I think a lot of time is spent, especially if you're a Scorpio, on the prowl, just trying to figure out what's going on. And then I always say this to young artists if they want to listen to me. When you meet a woman at a club or party or wherever it is, you're not just seeing her until 11.30 and you're going to bed. You're up with that girl until 4.30 in the morning, until the sun rises, and then they got to show up on the set at 8 o'clock in the morning yeah. at your set. That's not going to work. That not, doesn't work not well. Not easily, not easily. No, it, it, it helps that 
My wife's from Cincinnati, Ohio. She's the map of Midwest. Bronx, she didn't understand at all. But we got a, her biggest thing was lying. She had to learn. I took a, uh, here, what is that? Uh, the Coconut Grove, big nightclub without. There was a comedian. And we sat at a table. He paid. For, I had written some jokes. And then we went backstage. And I said, you were terrific, terrific. And my wife didn't say anything. And then I said, why didn't you say something? She says, he wasn't very terrific. <laughs> he only had like, two good jokes. I said, Let's talk about show business. We're going to be <laughs> married. You got to say something. You can't. He paid for the meal. And he, a couple of, I moved up from getting paid by food to getting paid by uh, house supplies, a blender, <laughs> and cutting knife. This is what I got paid with when I was out here with the comic. But so she learned. Now she says whatever she sees, a play, a how interesting <laughs> that's a, that's what she manages but you 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 go through experiences i guess my advice is i don't know everybody i feel artists really need a nest a home base it doesn't matter what form it can be it can be a guy taking care of his mother a home base because the business is a little crazy and you get into strange places and and it's uh, you know it's a uh, it's the art of rejection you take every day. It's yeah, it's art what you do, but you gotta know rejection. And I found rejection with somebody else with you is better. Your wife went to eighteen premieres of your movies. Yeah, and two extras I did where I produced. Look at that, yes. twenty. My so God. twenty movies she went to and sat next to you. She learned how to lie to other people for the business, but she's not going to lie to you. Tell us the movie that you made out of those 20 where she turned to you afterwards alone and she said, not good. She sometimes say not good sections, but she always learned. See, I, you got to be honest with your mate, and it helps if you try, you know, Okay, uh, sexual, wow, 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 and uh, religion, wow, wow, wow. But it's what bugs you. And my mother, I love my mother. She gave me my sense of humor. She didn't really respond well to presents and never complimented. You know, I gave her a present. Flowers, they'll die in two moments. Who cares, flowers? <laughs> what is, why'd you spend your money on this? Oh, okay, that wasn't so good, you think? So I told my wife, I like, first you say something nice, then you say, what was that scene over there? But I don't think in 20 times she said, that was garbage. There was one close. That, I, I did a movie called The Exit to Eden. That really wasn't one of my hits. But she said, that was a little odd, but if that's what you want to try, try it. But she never truly was uh, totally negative about anything. She'd say something is not nice to say. I don't mean cursing, but something is, uh, that'll offend somebody. But not much. She's always been there for me. And when your kids are little, they don't know what the hell you're doing. You can just get so, you know, I remember Danny Thomas, you know, a great man for me, helped me. I wrote a monologue for one of his specials, and he tore, ripped it in little pieces. 
He ripped it in little pieces in front of you. Yes, and threw it and said, no good, do it again. And then I remembered, brought back this memory where when I was at the stage deli giving guy a page of jokes, one comic took the page and lit it on fire with his cigarette lighter. And it was my first flaming rejection, but he just flamed it into the garbage. So it reminded me, I said, oh, I'm back there again. But then the head writer there told me, come here, schmuck, over here. He said, look out the window. I said, he ripped it up the whole mother. He said, look out the window. You see, there's men with hard hats on girders walking around up there. You're not up there. You're here in an office. There's a donut, there's coffee. There's something, you're gonna go home and end of the day, you see your wife? He says, so what, he ripped it up. You got a good job, stay with it, rewrite it. And I did rewrite it, but I always, sometimes when I get really, oh, I'm getting depressed, I said, look, at out there, look, I'm here, I'm with Barry Katz here in a nice room and we're talking. It's the same thing what you said about, there's the times where you push the rock up the hill but also there's equally the times when you're walking down the hill and noticing what's around you. You got to remember that. It's hard sometimes. A lot of things uh, you know, go wrong, but uh, my grandpa, he taught me the power of nice. There is a power of nice. And he told me, you do this, well, we'll do that. And I said, why are we doing that? Well, because you know, he, we, he took me to ball games. We'll get a better seat. We'll get a fudgical. Fudgical means a lot when you're six and seven. Now it's still not bad. <laughs> but I, I think part of it is uh, sometimes it sounds so corny to say, but sometimes if you're nice to somebody, something good happens. There's nothing bad that can come of being nice. There's nothing bad that can come of writing a handwritten thank you note. There's no. nothing bad that can come at the end of the party instead of leaving the party and not saying goodbye. There's nothing bad that can come of shaking the person's hand who invited you and thank them and hugging them. There's nothing bad that, that can come of that. No. But everything bad can come of not being nice, yeah. not doing the right I thing. I can't uh, disagree with that. I do, even uh, even though it takes time. The, can I... When you go to parties a lot, the thing is, I would bring my wife. My wife's not in the business. So they say, Gary, how are you? And they take my wife's hands. Hi, how are you? And they just go like, right, bye. <laughs> you know, and I noticed they do that not just to my wife, everybody, the other mate. So I do make a whole uh, thing about saying hello to people. I, I have this technique that I do, <laughs> which is weird. If I bring somebody, whenever I go to meet somebody, I put them on the other side of me so no one can ever do that. Ah. They have to reach past <laughs> me to say hello to them. Well, that's good because they do that all the time. Yes. All the time. And, and it, it's one of my favorite people is Anne Hathaway, a wonderful young girl. Now she's done great. And I'm very good with 19-year-olds. Anne was 19, Julia was 19. The waitress downstairs was 19? <laughs> no, not but close, <laughs> close. But I didn't tell her I was married 53 years, by the way. But she, had, she was up for the Oscar for Les Mis and a big party and everything. And I said hello, and you know, and Hugh Jackman, who I know, a nice fellow, I'm talking to them. 
But I know that in the corner, Suzanne's husband, Adam, nobody's talking to Adam. <laughs> Except for Gary Marshall. I go, hey, Adam, how are you? Who knows the most important thing. If you think meeting your boss at a get-together and shaking your boss's hand and talking to him is important, it's not nearly as important as talking to his wife and taking her aside and spending time with her. Just say hello. And uh, it, uh, it happens in every year. There's uh, so many uh, gay uh, things where the one partner is not a big shot, but you got to say hello. You know, so I believe in that. It, it's not the answer to success, but it, you sleep good at night. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the hardest things to understand when you're in any profession is, like you said, Danny Thomas could be argued a genius, okay? He got to the top of the mountain. He had his own show, and he's going up to you, a nice guy, and taking your monologue that you worked hours and hours and hours on and in front of you ripping it in pieces and throwing it down and basically get out of here, redo it. And he made it. So in our profession and in many professions out there, you're walking through the office and you're like, how did that guy get in the corner office? He's mean, he's nasty, he's cruel, and I want to get there, but I don't want to be that person. So there's examples in every profession all around where these horrible people who have made it, and there's nice people that have made it. And so, like you said, it's just the choice. Yeah, but it's not quite as simple as that because sometimes people who are mean only mean for a second or because something's bugging them. So Danny was really nice to me, but that moment he was so nervous about the show that he was. But, I mean, I learned everything I learned from working with Lucille Ball. I talked to my sister Penny, but the first script, I wrote for Lucille Ball. It, she wrote on it. I could sell it on eBay, make a fortune. She wrote, this is shit on the, in big letters. So it meant, please do better, rewrite. It's their way of encouraging you to better. But instead of writing, Gary, I'd like to make a request. Can we work on this, this, and this? Right now it's a B plus, but I want us to make this an A plus. Can we work together to do so? Instead, she wrote on it, this is shit. And you're supposed to interpret that as being what I just said. Because all people who are bosses, artists, actors, producers have no time to do that speech. You just said they should record it and just play it and leave the room. <laughs> It'd be better, but they have no time. So they do. And I've done it myself as a showrunner. No, no, there's no good. There's, we can't do crap or something. I don't write this or shit on anything. But I, I, I think that you go through it and you, I, I think I learned who does close to what you were saying. Not perfect, but close was Carl Reiner. Because Carl Reiner, I, I don't know if you mentioned, I wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show at the same time I was writing for Lucy. I was doing fine freelancing in those days. Jerry Belson and I. And he would, uh, he would not say that he'd say boys i i think we could do better than that and i learned from him i say when i direct as a director i'll say 
you know, we'll do a scene and the actor, it could be a star, just an actor, regular actor, but I treat everybody the same. And there was like a pause or something. They took a pause, which I say, everything was good, but during that one pause, I wrote a pilot, and I, I don't have to have another pilot. I, I got enough pilots, so let, let's do it one more time. And suddenly the pause is gone, you know. So I, I, you know, I remember saying Julia's favorite line is always... Julia Roberts? Julia Roberts. We're working, and every time she asks me now, and we do, do the scene once, and I said, you know, it's very good if we were going straight to video, and we may go straight to video. <laughs> Who knows? But let's try. Maybe we let's try one that might not go straight to video. <laughs> so even now, on Mother's Day, she said, "Was that a straight to video, Gary?" <laughs> I said, "No, we, we're okay." But uh, I mean, I think that way of working, Carl taught me that do with humor sometimes is better than saying this is shit. Do you really treat? everybody in every production the same or are you like a chameleon and you kind of change the way you are for different types because as you know there are extraordinary actors who are extraordinary people and then there are extraordinary actors who are really really hard troubled difficult people they're troubled yes they don't give you, but they are trouble. And so you can't possibly treat everyone the same when different people, like there's an actress who if you gave her a note to, she might cry because she thinks you think she did a bad job. And there's another actress you might give the same note to, and she'd be like, oh, thank you so much, Gary. That was wonderful. So how do you navigate between the really difficult actors who are extraordinary that you want to work with, but you know this is going to be tougher, and the ones that are the sweetest, nicest people in the world. Well, I still, knowledge is power as a director. The more you know about uh, the person and what they're going through and what's happening, are they going through a difficult divorce or something, you know that. I, I was taught I never told this story, but you're allowed to tell it, Miss Gayla. My first job, I was a producer, right? So, called How Sweet It Is was my first movie. And uh, it was after, I didn't have done, I didn't do my television shows. It was, I went into movies and then went into TV and then back into movies. So I did this movie. So one of the producers, because I wrote the script with Jerry Belson, one of the producers was Debbie Reynolds. She was the star, and she was a producer. And I went to, because I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. That's a lesson I learned early. I really don't know this job so well. I remember going to Debbie and said, this is my first time producing. It's this big meeting with 15 people and a production meeting and this and that. Is there anything I should know? And she was, everybody's in the hurry in show business. And she said, ask me when my period is. And she left. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if, but she, I said, really, she said that. But then we go to this big meeting, and there we are, and they said, any more questions? And I had to really say, should I say something? Was she kidding? Is she brushing the kid? And I took a shot. And I said, uh, excuse me, uh, Debbie, what, uh, you know, time of the month do you have that thing women have? 
And she says, when is my period? You're asking me. Finally, somebody's smart in the room. Do you people realize I have three swimming scenes in this picture? I can't do my swimming scenes at a certain time. You got to schedule. Here's my dates. Thank you, Gary. Here's my date schedule. So I said, every movie now, I know exactly for every woman in my show, exactly when the time of the month is because they do the best crying scenes at that the day. That's how we schedule. A lot of directors don't work like me. But you see, I do great crying scenes. Yes, you do. <laughs> All right. I'm going to keep going with what we were talking about before about your trajectory. So tell me some of the next jobs after the Joey Bishop show and tell us how you navigated through and tell us the moment where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else but this. Well, I never... Uh feel that secure to be honest I still have a full drum set in my house I'm in local 47 for lifetime member local 82 lifetime member and I get calls usually uh, for New Year's Eve and July 4th still but uh, I don't play but I always have that in case I don't I hope I do it the rest of my life but in case I always have that and I, I, I think with the uh, Carl Reiner and the Dick Van Dyke show, we kept uh, winning awards. And, and I understood that imagination is not the key to creating. Sometimes examining life, your life, is more key. So when we did the Dick Van Dyke show, we'd go in and call and say, okay, everybody tell me the stupidest thing they did this week. What's the most embarrassing thing you did? And then we'd say it, and we'd tell it, and that became stories. And once we could write that way, to me, I said, what if, I remember saying, what if it didn't happen to you? He says, so what? It happened to somebody else. You're allowed. Take their life. So, you know, it, but he says, don't take it from another comedy writer. He said, take it from regular people. So I, I still felt from those days, I was in the right business, and then it's just a matter of uh, creating your own show. And I created Hey Landlord with Jerry Belson, and it was 99th in the ratings. And I said, well... Who was the star of Hey Landlord? Sandy Barron and Will Hutchins. Nice actors, but it just didn't work. But out of everything I believe and have experienced, something good comes out of it. And uh, the beginning, Adrian did not work. One, they told me it was in the Bronx. Nobody wants to see a show in the Bronx. Make it in the Midwest. So the, ins the inspiration for Happy Days came from that show. And I later did Happy Days in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, it worked. So out of bad comes uh, good. And uh, it always has been that way. Here's a trivia question. On Broadway, at the Winter Garden Theater on Broadway, before Cats, there was a play. You know the play before Cats at the Winter Garden, before Cats? I don't know if I was alive then. All right. It was called The Roast. I wrote it. The Roast. Roast with Jerry Belson. The Roast lasted three nights. Cats ran for 18 years. Isn't that an indication you should get out? 
Not to me. But you don't get out. That's the thing. Your first <laughs> pilot that you did went to series, but it failed. Yes. Your first thing that went to Broadway failed. Boy. But you didn't give up. No, you keep coming back because there's always, I believe, and it's in a part of Mother's Day, I particularly do it, no matter what you do and what's happening in the world, somebody doesn't care. There's a person totally oblivious to it all. In Mother's Day, I have, there's an accident, and everybody's all ready, and there's one kid just dancing. He don't give a <laughs> damn what's happening. And, go, and that's the way I, I look at life. There's a big uh, with scene with cops, and in the middle, a lady is, is getting her mail out of a mailbox. She don't care. There's cops there. Who, not my business. Goes. So I find that, that even though the opposite also happens, Somebody don't care, and somebody cares. And when I did the roast, it was a flop in Boston. We shouldn't have gone to Broadway. We did anyway, because you learn. Boston, the critics didn't like it, but the head usher liked it, right? He would say, it's funny. I said, it's not really such a play. That section is, we had 20 minutes. That was really funny. I knew I was writing correctly there, but I didn't know how to write a play. But anyway, so the roast bomb later, that usher's name, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, I'm doing a broadcast or something. That usher's name was Jason Alexander, right? Later in the life. The usher in Boston, was it the Schubert Theater? Yes, he went to Boston College, a student usher. Later, I said, I need that kid they said, he won't do it. He's a song and dance man on Broadway. I said, tell him I want him to come and be in Pretty Woman. He said, Gary Marshall, Gary Marshall, I'll come. What do I, and, and they said, you don't sing and dance. I don't care. You know, and he did it, and he was great in Pretty Woman. So that's a true story. That's amazing. Again, you create these relationships, and I'm sure Jason Alexander didn't rip up your program in front of you and throw it at you. Never did that. He kept saying, that was funny. I loved that section. You kind of did what you told your wife to do. Yes, my wife was always, or my wife would say, well, the critics really wrapped me here. She said, what did they know? You know, we go on. And a lot of times she'll say, you know, it doesn't mean life is over. You know, you get, if you're in the arts, you're going to get criticized. You're going to fail. So you got to say that comes with the territory, as they say. Talk about some people that you gave a shot to that nobody was giving a shot to, like Jason. Like there's one person that did a movie with you who was a guest on the show, which was fantastic. And you gave him a shot to do a small role in Pretty Woman. And it was one of the greatest moments of his career, in my opinion, and it drove things forward for him. And that was Larry Miller. Yeah, Larry Miller. And he was a comic, and you have a thing in your heart for comics. I love comics, yes. So they started me in this Tell us book. a few people that you took a chance on that nobody was giving a shot to that you believed in when probably a lot of people didn't believe in. Well, it's not so much they didn't believe, but nobody paid much attention to uh, this kid uh, in uh, Princess Diaries. Uh, Anne Hathaway was, did once a TV show. She wasn't uh, anybody, she was 19. And in the second one, uh, I found this kid. I believe in, if you do romantic comedies, you gotta kiss. 
So I'm very careful with kissing. I test for kissing. So you do screen test, and you put the combinations of actors and actresses together, and you tell them, look, I'm going to have you kiss. Yes. Well, I had Anne Hathaway. So the second one, I said, we, we need a big kiss here. So I got seven guys. I, I auditioned everybody. I got seven. I said, you're going to have to kiss seven. She said, okay, well, all right, let's see. And we did. She kissed seven guys. Not, I mean, it was a scene. And what I do is I take them and I play with the sound off and watch the kiss. And it became very obvious that uh, Chris Pine was the best kisser. And that's why he got it and became a big star out of that. So it's quite possible in those screen tests that some of those six people did a better job acting the scene, but he was the best kisser. It has to be a combination because the audience sometimes not quite sure what the acting is, but they know what the kissing is. They know if it's right or sincere. Larry Miller, by the way, was great. He was in Mother's Day. He always works with me. When he, they brought him in, they said, this guy's funny. I auditioned him. He wasn't funny. He came in to play a lawyer. and uh, But sometimes if passion is a word that they use a lot, but it's true. And I said, not good. And the casting director said, no, he really is. You gotta. I said, I read him twice. She said, well, read him in something else. I said, Larry, listen, I haven't got time. Let's improvise this scene. Here, here. What? Improvise the lawyer. No, forget the lawyer. You're not good at that. Imp- Here's a part. He's, I said, there's a clerk. He said, there's no lines for the clerk. I said, I know. But let's improvise. What if there were? Let's make this up. And we improvised the scene together. And I said, you are funny. And he was the clerk and pretty woman, and he killed with that scene. He really did. And there, nothing was written. Wow. I mean, later we wrote it together, but uh, that's Larry Miller. So the kiss thing, one of my clients, Jay Moore, was a new actor, and he got a role in Picture Perfect as the co-lead with Jennifer Aniston, her first big movie as a lead. And he has to fly from Jerry Maguire, which was his first movie, to New York. And he flies in, and the first scene on the board is a kissing scene with her. And he's looking through the lines, and he calls Tom Cruise before he leaves. He says, Tom, can I ask you something? He said, sure, come over. He said, look, I'm really nervous. I got this scene I've got to do with Jennifer Aniston. My first scene up, I don't even know this woman. I have to be making out with her and kissing her. How do I do it? Do I kiss her with a soap opera kiss? Just the basic kiss? Do I kiss her passionately? Do I do a tongue kiss with her? What do I do? And Tom Cruise's advice was, you follow her lead. Whatever she does, you do. And that's what you have to do and how you have to do it. Is it possible that Anne Hathaway was more attracted to Chris Pine and gave him more in the kiss than she gave to the other six. No, no question. She likes boys, this one and that one. But that's very possible that she did a little better. But he has to respond. Anytime you do anything sexual at all, you got to rely on the woman. The only exception is Richard Gere. Every other situation, the woman controls it. Richard's the only one who understands what that's about. And he helped Julia in Pretty Woman and now, and he's helped many others, but 
Mostly it's the girl who's got to control it and do it because, you know, the facts of life are if somebody gets excited, the girl, you can't tell with the girl, but the guy will get excited and blow the whole scene. So you rely on the girl to control it. And I talk it out before. And sometimes I literally, I had a, a first, uh, a second assistant, a very nice girl, and we used to go in the trailer with the, eat not together, each separate, and say, here's what I expect, and we go go through the motions without kissing of the whole scene and see if there's anything they liked or didn't. And uh, you do it to make them comfortable. And sometimes you got to fake it. I remember a, a whole scene where uh, this actress had was playing a, a prostitute and she had to go, there was a montage of various men she was on top of making love. And usually... You, you discuss it, and if worse comes to worse, you have a drink before, but then you do it. But I, she couldn't do it, so we had a guy laying down, a mattress on top of him, a rubber thing, and she laid on top, so that's how we did it. So you have to adhere to the process. All right, and I'd be remiss if I didn't do a little six degrees of separation with you. I'm going to mention a name of somebody, yeah. and you mention anything that comes to mind. Ron Howard. Nicest guy you ever want to meet and quite good at what he does. His first picture, directly, he was nervous. He said, Gary, you're acting in the movie. I said, boy, I'm nervous. So I acted, and he was very nice. I would say a genuine, real person, Ron Howard. Julia Roberts. Most dynamic and uh, interesting person I ever met. Is so full of fun and uh, doing very well. Now, I saw her at 19, she was a, a kid running around. Then she got a cell phone, and now she's a mother of three. I think a, a, a very good life. Very proud of her. Robert De Niro. One of the most interesting actors ever worked with. So interesting, and uh, you learn from him by speaking a minimum of talking. Lucille Ball. The best of the best, best uh, ever as a comedian, I gotta confess, of her era. Now there's others. The first pretty woman who didn't mind being not pretty. Lindsay Lohan. A piece of work, but uh, quite a good actress. <laughs> Richard Gere. Loves baseball. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg. Funny girl, not afraid. Love. Her birthday is the same birthday as me, November 13th. Our lucky numbers are 13. Robert Downey Jr. Always wanted to be in my family. Said he wanted to be related to me. He says, when I was growing up, I just wanted to be in your family. I could go, because he had a tougher growing up. But uh, uh, a guy, I see... A great comeback. Penny Marshall. One of a kind. <laughs> My sister's, uh, the, what can I say, the funniest person from when she was little. And Penny Marshall, prankster. 
when I was little, I was always sick, so my mother used to take my clothes, my underwear, and everything, and put it on the radiator, the heater, you know, so it'd be warm, and I'd put it on, and I would get up. Penny would take it and put it in the refrigerator and make it ice cold, and then take it and put it back on. So when I got up, I would, ah, I was freezing. She loves to prank, Penny. The late Robin Williams. The only true, true genius I ever worked with, the sadness with Robin. He was a genius, but the demons got to him, and uh, anhedonia, you know what anhedonia is? Because people should learn. Anatonia is a psychological term. It means uh, no feeling or pleasure outside your work. It means no feeling or pleasure. That's the definition. But he didn't have enough outside his work, I always felt. that I tried. I, I play softball, still play softball. I have a game this Thursday. I pitch. We're older. But you have to have some other pleasures in life besides your work. A lot of people don't. But the last time I cried was when Robin went. What's your proudest moment in show business? My proudest moment in show business, my proudest moments are really not in show business. It's uh, with my family and the kids. But I went to see a great show called Hamilton on Broadway, right? And so, one of the few people who can get tickets. Well, I know a person knows a person, but I find I found another kid out of Cleveland yet. Tom Hanks is from Cleveland, but my second was Rory O'Malley, who was in Happy Days, my musical, playing Richie Cunningham, and now was in Hamilton playing King George. So I got to, he's doing great. So I got to go backstage, and I met this guy. Lynn Manuel is a genius man. He won the Pulitzer Prize for a musical yet. And he said hello, and he came down. He says, I, I'm working. I got to go someplace in between the matinee and the, and the nighttime show. He says, but I had to stop. He says, you're the real Gary Marshall. And he gave me a big hug, and he said, you helped get me through my childhood. Your shows, he said, I didn't have an easy childhood, but... Your shows helped me. And that was one of my proudest moments, I must say. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Oh, I had a lot of disappointments. Uh, but uh, I guess the, 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 uh, the bottom was the roast. It, it didn't even last three nights. It really lasted only one night. But if you don't play three nights, you don't get the insurance. And then everybody said goodbye and get out of here. It had a big It wasn't a good play. It wasn't uh, those guys. They didn't understand. It wasn't a good play. Later, I did a play with George C. Scott, who told me once he, he closed the show at intermission. He, <laughs> he, he was producing a show. He came out at intermission. This isn't working, folks. Get your money back. We're done. But uh, I think the roast probably was the Worst disappointment because I had to do a cast party after, and everybody didn't come. But those who came, I thought I'd at least say goodbye and do that. But that, and that was just okay. Um, do do it right next time. Last question: What advice would you have for the young person who's overhearing his parents say, "You know, this kid might die if he doesn't move"? 
to somebody who's going through situations at work where somebody's being mean to them to somebody who's just starting out in the business. If they're an actor or a comedian or an executive or producer or director, what would your advice be for that young person to fight through it and to get to have the kind of career that you've had? I think you got to do everything. You can't stay uh, in one spot. I, I One of my uh, pictures I got tremendous reviews was uh, nothing in common with uh, Tom Hanks and, and, and Jackie Gleason. And uh, yet, I couldn't say, I'm a great director. I mean, you got to be versatile. You got to try to do everything. I don't want to shock anybody. It's a fickle business. So the more different jobs you can do, I ask all actors to try to write something some or try to produce. Directing is difficult, but uh, they always say, what I really want to do is direct. That's not a good way to go. What you really want to do is write or produce. But I say, do every job that comes up and see if you like it. That's my advice to anybody starting. It's don't quit, but do every job. Awesome. Gary Marshall, unbelievable. I am so, so proud myself and honored that you came here. I had a nice chat, and I don't miss the waitress, and I now can go to the restroom. Thank you very much. No, it's really a pleasure. We talked about some serious stuff, but it's part of life. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Barry. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on John Schneider from Hemet, California. Congratulations, John. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, this one is by The Undeniable Engineer, July 19, 2015. Uh, title is Changed My Life, five stars. This podcast changed my life, and it will change yours too. His influence is felt through me in all things I do in business now, and he continues to be the well I draw on. Thank you very much, Undeniable Engineer. Congratulations. As always, if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, Tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz, Industry Standard. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. 
walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.